It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in one of those two coordinates, as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the show, I have uh, with us two directors from 3NE, it is Blue Eyes Simpson and Jason Schultz, and they are joining me on the line. It's a pleasure to have you both with me here on the show as we talk about uh, an Indigenous-owned solar farm remote uh, north east of Alberta, uh, in Alberta, and it's the largest project of its kind in Canada, so congratulations. Thank you, David. Thank you. And I understand that uh, you had a grand opening not that long ago. Yes, on November 17th, we uh, kicked off the project with a ribbon cutting. It was a small event in the community, and we followed up with a virtual larger event uh, on November 18th. So it was a great way to celebrate the success of the project. Uh, Blue, do you have anything to add? Yeah, uh, the, uh, yeah the ribbon cutting was uh, quite a nice uh, event. It was uh, kind of the... Um, the opening of, of everything that we've been working really hard towards for our community. And uh, it was uh, attended by, uh, you know, some very uh, important people as community members and elders and, and leaders. So it was quite a nice event for that day. And same with the next day on the, with the virtual, uh, you know, uh, the virtual session was uh, really well and went really good. Yeah, it was great. We had representation from ATCO, from the federal government, the provincial government, and Blue alluded to various uh, community leaders. So it was a great, great initiative and a great way to celebrate the project. Mm. Now, uh, Three Nations Energy, which is the 3NE that I referred to earlier, it's a corporation. It's owned by Athabasca Chipoyan First Nation, and uh, and that's uh, for Chipoyan Métis Association Uh the Migasu, Mikasu, thank you, Cree First Nation as well. Um, so congratulations to the three. Now, I understand that this is going to supply about 25% of the energy needs in the community. Yes, that's correct. If you annualize it over the year, obviously uh, peak production is in the summer when you have longer daylight hours and less so in the winter, but it will be an exciting initiative. There'll be uh, days in the summer where there's no need for diesel generation in the community whatsoever. And obviously that need for diesel increases as we go into the uh, colder winter months with fewer daylight hours. You know, that's interesting. Of course, I've been to a couple of northern communities that are powered by diesel. I'm guessing that that will be a bit strange, I'm guessing. Uh, First of all, you won't hear the diesels running. It will definitely be a new experience for the community. I haven't experienced it yet, but look forward to seeing it for myself. Uh, We're getting great feedback on some of the smaller solar initiatives in the community, uh, just general, uh, generally less noise, and uh, community members seem to appreciate that. But uh, it's definitely going to be a a new precedent for the community to get used to. Um, I'd like to ask about the installation, how long the installation process took. But before we get there, on the on the day of the, of the announcement and and when uh, when it was it took place, a blue. I, I just want to say that I saw a picture of you standing there, and I I really liked the podium that you were using. <laughs> it's it's uh, made out of posts. It was really really unique. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a very good day. A little chilly, but it was very good. 
Uh, so can you can you guys tell us about the the installation process? How long of a period did it take to to get put this all together? Well, the project itself started in December, well, November, December of 2017. ATCO approached the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation looking for a community partner to drive the project forward and pursue some grant funding. So the earliest portion uh, goes back almost three years. Now, the actual construction, once the contracts were in place and all the various providers had been chosen to perform those services, um, started in the spring of this year with uh, brush clearing and then pile driving for the racking, solar panel installation, and then uh, once again, the ribbon cutting in November 17th. So the construction period itself was less than a year, but the project itself spans approximately three years. Hmm. What does this mean for the community in terms of, you know, renewable energy and turning to a renewable energy source? You know, you guys are in Alberta. It's a big province for uh, fossil fuels. Um, are you and do you are you do you have any connection to the fossil fuel fuel industry within your communities? Blue, if you'd like to take this one, I can always add to your feedback. Sure. Yes, uh you know, uh, obviously, we, we, we will be some dependent on the uh, fossil fuel industry. And we are just downriver from uh, from the industries of, you know, the big industry corporations that are here in Alberta, out of Fort McMurray. And, uh, you know, what it means for our community is uh, the fact that we can continue to be uh, stewards of the land. And this is one way that uh, helps us to validate that we are uh, continuous stewards, uh, you know, of our environment. Uh, as Indigenous people, uh, that's one of our key uh, key elements that we look at: is how do we protect our land? How do we uh, how do we work together with Mother Earth, with our you know our lands, so that they are safe for for use, safe for our future generations to continue. And as I said at the beginning, you know, uh, we are still de- somewhat dependent on the fossil fuels and. Uh, as time goes on, I think the generations will start to find, from us, will start to find other ways of renewable energy that are going to be safer and, uh, you know, for our, our generations as uh, as time goes. Uh, Blue, one of the things, uh, the comments that I saw from the opening day, you mentioned, um, you know, turning not only to, to the the solar power, but also wind and water. Uh, is that what you were re- referencing there in terms of the future? Or do you at this point in, in time in your communities have any availability of, of uh, uh, accessing wind and, and water energy as well? Well, uh, we haven't discussed anything in regards to around wind and unless... Unless, Jason, there's something that I missed there. But, you know, we haven't talked anywhere in that uh, light of uh, renewable energy. Uh, water, you know, we deal enough. We have the uh, we have Lake Athabasca that's here. And we, you know, we, we deal with, as a community, the impacts from uh, various dams throughout, you know, like with the BC High uh, Bennett Dam that affects our area because we do have uh, the largest freshwater delta the Peace Athabasca Delta here in the world that we're we're dealing with uh, trying to uh, to keep that going, you know, and it doesn't dry up. So, as in the water, there's uh, there's different dams that are around, but nothing uh, virtually close to us. Uh, so, you know, maybe those will be talks in in the future of, of what's going to happen with that. But at this time, uh, right now, we just have the solar farm. Hmm. Uh, and speaking of the solar farm, as I mentioned, uh, and and we talked about off the top, it's owned by the th- the three first uh, First Nation communities, one hundred percent. Is this unique in, in this regard? 
Um, it's the first of its kind in Canada, so uh, it's unique in one sense, but I think it's also um, a sign of accomplishment and a model that can be rolled out and introduced into other communities where there are, are multiple stakeholders involved. Uh, I'd like to think we've set the precedent and set the bar pretty high, but it's definitely something to aspire to and can be replicated elsewhere. And so have you had any uh, any uh, anyone inquiring about this thus far? Other communities interested in possibly, you know, implementing something like this themselves in their communities? Well, I think as media coverage spreads and word spreads and the technology proves itself viable, I think there'll be an increasing appetite. There's interest, obviously, but I think that interest is building and as more and more information about the potential of renewables, especially in remote communities that are uh, challenged by logistics, given a lack of roads, maybe diesel has to be flown into the communities. This just provides one more alternative to challenging the status quo and providing a paradigm shift. So I would argue, yes, but I would also advocate or add a caveat that we're still in the early stages and maybe Blue can add more insight to that if she sees fit. Yeah, you know, uh, we're, uh, yeah, we're in the early stages and I, as, as Jason had mentioned, you know, that uh, once the media coverage goes further and there will be interest and um, I do get comments, you know, from people on, on how uh, impressed they are that we've, uh, we've done this and, you know, it's it's nice to know, and I'm sure that there will be there will be others. And like he said, it's the first of its kind, and this community really works hard on working together as a community, even though we are a small community, and uh, you know we've intermarried and lived together all our lives, and yet we're separate because of our First Nations or our Métis Association. But it doesn't mean that we can't work together. So we we work really hard as an example on how things can people can work together or groups can work together to uh, have a success for their community as a whole. Mm. I'm wondering, you know, I'm looking at a picture of the solar farm and, and the, the image that it, and the area that it takes up. And I'm not familiar with this. So I'm wondering, does once a solar farm is put in place like it is, is the land available available to be used in other at other for other purposes at the same time? Or is it does it have to be kept cleared? Is it, you know, is it only set up and it can only be used for that purpose? Well, there's a few complementary things that might be possible. Once again, we're in the early stages of the project, so I would advocate the time will tell where we go with this, uh, given the fact it is a utility-scale generation facility. There is some risk for public usage, so there is a perimeter around the facility um, when people are on the property there is you know proper safety protocol that needs to be adhered to but there is some uh, there is some potential synergy around native vegetation in the region um, I know similar projects have experimented with vegetation control using goats or other uh, livestock so you know there's various synergies for usage that are complementary, but public access is not something that is easily granted. Right. Uh, yeah, I was just wondering about 
like you said, that's great. Goats uh, might be able to to uh, uh, graze the area or something like that. I was thinking about you know, the possibility of you know other farming options. I don't know. Uh, I'm sure that you have to keep the the solar panels clear uh, and have access to them, of course. And that brings up another question, which is maintenance and uh, and the potential for job opportunities out of this. Well, in terms of job opportunities, the construction of the project itself resulted in approximately eight or 10 local uh, temporary jobs for the community. Um, In terms of ongoing operations and maintenance, ATCO is going to be performing that function. Uh, There may be an opportunity later on for an additional uh, part-time or potentially even a full-time operations position. In terms of ongoing maintenance, we did some economic assessment modeling and uh, found that in the winter months, for example, there's a reduction of efficiency on the panels by approximately 10%. Mm. But the economics of hiring somebody do not justify the position given the reduced daylight hours, etc. Uh, you're better off with a 10% reduction in efficiency as opposed to uh hiring somebody and uh, further eroding your profit margin. So definitely something to explore. But, uh, you know, um, I argue areas in the south with longer daylight hours and when you have large economies of scale, the maintenance component becomes a little bit easier to justify. Right. Now, because of your location and because of the, the variation in daylight hours, as you mentioned, from summer to winter, uh, is there a way in the summer with the long hours of daylight that will be provided for the solar panels and, and for this operation, is there a way to capture and store the energy or you know, can you use it at a later time? How, how does that work? Once again, in partnership with ATCO, there is a control unit and a battery bank. Uh, the cost of that is approximately $3 million, so there is a way to store the energy and dispatch it when it's needed. Um, but once again, that's somewhat limited in its capacity. Um, it makes the overall combination of diesel and solar function in a smoother manner, but you're still limited by the storage capacity of the technology and uh, that could be fairly short-lived in the event that, uh, you know, you have no daylight hours in the winter. Mm. Uh, that battery bank can only provide so much energy to the community in the process. Right. At Blue, how did the communities uh, react to the implementation of this? And now that it's online, uh, how, how do you think the, 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 the community members feel about this? Now, for the community, you know, it, it was a new endeavor uh, and knowing that we're working together was uh, was a big joy for the people, you know. And now that it's all online, uh, it's an exciting uh, endeavor, and you know, it, it brings out more questions, more storytelling, more learning, and uh, which we find uh, very, very, uh, how would I say, not unique but very interesting and and educational in regards to. Uh, yeah, especially the elders wanting to know what are these big mirrors, you know, <laughs> that are facing the sky. Some of them don't quite understand. Mm. And so uh, as members of the board or, you know, people that do understand what solar farm and what renewable energy is, they, they take on to uh, educate our elders and our, and our youth, you know, but the youth too, they're, they're, they're one ahead of us. They've always got newer and bigger ideas or ideas on, you know, what can we add to this and that, but the community is, uh, 
has really appreciated it, is appreciating it, and uh, you know, looking at it as really interesting and how times change from where we were 50 years ago to now. Mm. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it is a pleasure to have with me here on the show. I have Blue Eyes Simpson and uh, Jason Schultz. They are both directors with 3NE and uh, that is Three Nations Energy. And we're talking about the implementation of their uh, fully owned uh, solar farm that has just come online in November. And congratulations to the communities involved. Maintenance, is it fairly low on this kind of an installation? Maintenance in general is fairly low. It's uh, self-sufficient. There's obviously some regular uh, inspections that need to occur, but those intervals are approximately 5-10 years. So what we might be traditionally used to in terms of maintenance is greatly reduced compared to uh, the maintenance required on the diesel generators with mm. moving parts, et cetera. Right. Now, the other thing I'm wondering about is uh, the efficiency of the panels. You mentioned it drops about 10% in the winter. I'm guessing part of that is related to weather, uh, colder temperatures perhaps. But uh, over the, what is the lifespan of, of these panels? Any idea? Um, the lifespan of the panels or the lifespan of the project is anticipated to be 35 years. Uh, that's what we demonstrate in our modeling. There's also a warranty period in the event that any of the panels prove faulty, but we're optimistic that the panels will live up to, if not exceed the 35-year lifespan that everybody has uh, envisioned. Mm. Uh, what What have you guys learned from this process? you know, uh, the installation of this? Uh, what were some of the questions that came up earlier in regard to putting something like this in your community? What were some of the questions that the community members had? And what, what have you found since it has now come online and, and it's operational? Well, once again, going back to the earlier days of the project, there was a lot of community engagement required because there was a general lack of understanding. When people think of solar farms, they think of southern Alberta, if not the southern U.S., where, there, where it's warmer, there is more sunshine. So it required a fair bit of a paradigm shift and engagement to educate the community. But I think it also proves that you can come together, you can challenge the status quo, and you can come out ahead. Um, there is an opportunity for both the traditional fossil fuel industry, but I also believe there is a an opportunity for newer renewable technology in the community um, that, you know, has farther reaching implications. And I think Blue can further add to that feedback, uh, perhaps through more of a community-focused lens, if you don't mind, Blue. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, uh, with the community, I guess one of the questions that came out was, and one of the biggest questions was, are we going to stop using uh, diesel and is the solar farm going to... uh, give us lower electricity bills, you know, and mm. uh, that's one of the things that uh, continues to come up. And when they see that, you know, 25% of it is going back into the energy uh, and how it, uh, we become uh, cleaner, cleaner um, stewards for the land and for, you know, for our climate and everything, they kind of, uh, they understand, they understand uh, how processes work and, you know, so they're, they're getting it and, you know, I think that uh, the community is going to continue to use this to uh, educate, ask questions, learn more, 
and just uh, really enjoy the fact that uh, you know we are the largest solar farm off the grid in, in Canada, and uh, we've set a precedence like Uplay uh, Fortune always does. So yeah, that's where we come from as a community perspective. And I think it's also important to point out, David, that. Uh, 15% of the revenue generated from Three Nations Energy is going to be put back into community education programming. So it continues to inspire individuals and future generations for years to come. And then the revenue from the project as well, although it doesn't uh, trickle down to individual electricity bills, one third of that revenue, once the 15% is stripped out, will go back to each of the community stakeholders and those funds can be spent on additional community programming or priorities as to whatever each ownership group sees fit. That's great. When you say education, how do you mean education in terms of learning about the solar panels, the the solar setup? How did you how did you mean that? All of the above. We're also experimenting with a community wood processing facility to uh, um, generate additional employment, et cetera, various energy efficiency programs. We're looking at food sustainability in the community. So anything green, but it's not necessarily restricted to uh, any one lens per se. I think we're somewhat flexible with that programming and time will tell as technology evolves and there's other great ideas in the community as to maybe where these funds should be allocated. Hmm. And, you know, I, I know it's fairly early into this. You've just launched this project. And, uh, again, I go back to looking at the, the image of the solar panel farm that is set up and, and the area that it takes up that allows uh, to provide for 25% roughly of, of the energy needs in, in the community. Uh, what about the idea of expansion? Well, I think that's a pretty timely topic because... Uh, we sharpened our pencils early on in the project management phase and we managed to come up with some fairly substantial savings on the project. So with some of the savings, we're uh, repurposing those funds to adding another 150 kilowatts to the original design of 2.2 megawatts. So that will add uh, an extra 350, 400 solar panels to the existing infrastructure and uh, once again, as the community need for electricity and demand on the grid grows, there may be future opportunities for additional expansion. Well, that's great. That's very encouraging. It's, it's great to hear. Is there anything else you guys can think of that we haven't talked about that you think is important to mention about this? I think it sets a great precedent, not only for Fort Chippewa, but additional communities. I think it demonstrates reliance and partnerships between industry, governments, and communities. And I think such a funding model can be once again, redeployed in other communities. And I look forward to seeing some of that uh, roll out across the country, if not other places outside of Canada as well. I'd like to add that, you know, Fortune being as small as it is, and we are an isolated community, that we are, we do persevere and we're very resilient. And, you know, we, we think of ways to, uh, to stay a part of, even though we're isolated, stay a part of the world and what goes on and whether it's education, technology, whatever it may be, you know, we uh, we strive for those things so that, uh, you know, we're, we're not, uh, I guess in the past we used to say we were always left behind, but as it goes, you know, today and we'll move forward that uh, we are right next, right side by side with anything that goes on in the world today, just about, you know. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Well, that's wonderful news. Congratulations to both of you and uh, to your community uh, for this wonderful uh, implementation of this uh, solar panel, the largest of its kind in Canada. That's great news. Thank you, David. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you, and and I certainly hope we can contact uh, you again in the future to to find out about any updates or or any uh, future endeavors that you guys have have, uh, ongoing and that we can uh, share with, with people outside the community. It would be a great pleasure to reconnect in due time. Merry Christmas and all the best in 2021, David. Well, thank you, and same to both of you. Yes, keep safe out there, and I'm sure we'll get through this all together. Okay, take care, and happy holidays to you. All right. right. Thank you. Bye-bye. And they are the voices of Blue Eye Simpson and Jason Schultz. They are directors at 3NE, or the Three Nations Energy Corporation. And uh, we've been talking to them about their recent implementation of their solar panel farm. And it came online in November. Congratulations to them. And it's, as I say, the largest kind of its kind in Canada. So congratulations to them. And uh, that's this part of the program. I'm your host, David Moses. Please don't go away. We will be right back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 95.7 in Ottawa and 106.5 in Toronto. You can also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app anywhere across the country. If you download the app and then type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We're welcoming to the show Karen Kettler. She is the manager of the Peru Civic project and i'm going to let you say where what community it is you're in in quebec yeah i'm in Inukjak, uh, quebec which is on the hudson bay east side uh we're above the tree line mm. right and the reason you are on the show today is because you are as i said your manager of this project that is now being able to grow vegetables all year round um, and that is because of a hydroponic uh, growing container that has been uh, brought into the community. Is that correct? We acquired a grocer container in October uh, this year, and we plan to grow vegetables year-round. A grocer container. What, what does that mean? The grocer container is a company out of Ottawa, they're called Grocer, oh, okay. Grow, and then B-E-R, which is okay. like grocery. Yep. I guess they merged the two words. And they developed a hydroponic container that can grow um, lots of vegetables all year round using a hydroponic system of water and pipes and trays and that plants use to access the nutrients to grow. Okay, well, thank you for explaining that. When you said grocer, I thought we were talking about a, a sort of generic term for that container, but you're absolutely right. The grocer manufacturing module, this hypotonic, hypotonic uh, uh, system that enables you to plug and play 
uh, modules, and and that's very interesting to to be able to do, especially in a climate such as yours, as you say, above the tree line, uh, very cold uh, temperatures, uh, short summers, long summer days. I'm guessing, of course, uh, when you do have the warmer weather, which I guess is a benefit for growing. Can you tell us a little bit more about the container, though? I, I'm wondering how it is set up that allows you to do this. I, I think also that you, you're using water to grow and, and not earth. Is that correct? Correct. The uh, container is a 40-foot long container, sea can, basically. And they've modified the inside to have maybe one-fourth of a mechanical room, which is also the place where you start your seedlings. And then the la- the three three quarters of the container is actually uh, shelves, uh, maybe four shelves mm. that have trays of water and trays for the plants to sit in. So the process is you plant your seeds if they need to be planted, um, and then you transplant transplant them into these trays that grow between 6 to 12 weeks, depending on the vegetable you're planting. Okay, a 40-foot trailer, as you say. Uh, I'm guessing it looks much like uh, the containers we would see uh, going by on trains, something like that. Yes, Uh, but I'm told that it's uh, longer than a a regular uh, sea can. Okay, And, and so... What was it like, if you don't mind me asking, was it able Was it able to be just driven to the community? Are, are there roads all the way up to the communities? Uh, Nunavik is a fly-in only region. Okay. Uh, we're at the top of Quebec. Yep. And so everything that we receive either comes by plane or uh, by ship. Right. And we were able to uh, have this container on the second ship, which is the last ship of the year in mm. October. Great. And you say this is modified so you can grow things. I'm, I'm guessing it has some, some fairly good insulation to help keep that warmth in and the cold out as well. Yes. And also it has a fan to help, uh, you know, cool it off in the summer too, because mm. it can also get uh, warm here. Yeah. Now, is it completely sealed? And what I mean by that, is there like a skylight for the light to come in through the top at all? Or is is it just all uh, uh, completely sealed in all, all sides? Yeah, all the sides are completely sealed. There's no windows. Uh, There is a vent for air to be uh, shuffled out if it's too hot. Um, There's a a little pipe for the furnace and the electrical. Um, The water tank to hold the water um, is inside the mechanical area. We're going to have to... um, enter the water through a hose through the door because we're not set up uh, for that connection for our water trucks because where we live, all of our water and sewage pickup is picked up by trucks or dropped off by trucks. Mm. Uh, we don't have any pipes in our in our community. Right. So you received this in October, as you say, on the second ship of the season that came in and, and you were able to get that in uh, prior to the uh, th- that uh transportation system, uh, I guess, ending for the for the year. And you've got it in, I guess you've got it in place and you're starting to set it up or have you already got it up uh, in place, set up and ready to go? Is it is it already starting to uh, be put into use? 
We are waiting on a few uh, technical uh, parts to connect the electrical and the furnace. Mm. Once those are received over the holidays, uh, we should be able to have everything installed in mid-January. And uh, we will also be receiving some training from the grocer company mm. uh, to you know, help us get going, uh, to understand how to... Uh, plant the seeds and and then hopefully by uh, I think April uh, we should have our first harvest. Nice. Can you tell us a little bit about the background of this? How did this all get started? Well, in 2017, uh, the One Drop Foundation approached uh, Nunavik and was looking for an opportunity to have a project. Makovic um, met with them and said that they would help them. Uh, find a community that would work with them. And so we uh, started here in Inukjuak in October 2017. And the the background of OneDrop is that they're an international um, organization that helps communities work on you know, good water access and uh, good hygiene uh, practices and so when we when they approached the community about what they wanted to do, um, the the outcome was that the community wanted a, a year round greenhouse. Hmm. Was that surprising? I mean, is it is it our because I know that uh, that is not necessarily uh, traditional uh, food that they would and uh, traditional people would be eating in that area. Is that fair to say? Uh, there's uh, several plants that uh, can be harvested and eaten uh, during the summer and spring and fall time. Uh, so there are plants that are eaten. Uh, it, it is definitely a hunting community. Mm. Uh, so gardening is something that still needs to be learned and um, practiced. So through this project, we've done several activities to help prepare uh, for this, you know, hydroponic container and also a year-round greenhouse. Mm. How has the community uh, um, been uh, taking to this idea of, of having a year-round greenhouse in their community? Mm. We've done a, a couple of consultations, uh, one in 2018, uh, and this is where we learned that the year-round greenhouse was something that they yeah. wanted. Yeah. The second uh, consultation we did was a community survey. So we actually found out what people like to eat and Mm. what they wanted to grow inside the greenhouse. And the majority of those that responded uh, were in support of this greenhouse. Okay, that's fascinating. So the community wants a greenhouse, but I'm sure that uh, you're not just going to be growing the uh, greens that you mentioned earlier that are uh, uh, that are uh, uh, native to the area that you can grow. What other greens are you looking to grow and introduce the community to? Well, the hydroponic container uh, grows mainly leafy uh, vegetables. So we're going to start with kale, lettuce, spinach, and we're, we've got seeds from a local plant called hungalik. And it's very similar to a plant in English that's called mountain sorrel. Mm. This, this leafy kind of uh, vegetable that's, that grows naturally around 
Enoch Jack is kind of a minty, not minty, sorry, limey, uh, lemony, fresh burst of flavor when you eat it. <laughs> and uh, it's hard to find. Um, and but I think with the hydroponic container, we'll we'll be able to produce this and, and share it with the community. Oh, that sounds great. I, I think I'd like to try that. Um now, what about the growing of these greens in there? I, I'm, I'm taking it that uh, these leafy greens that you'll be growing are, are have had some some success in in being grown in these kind of environments. Um, yeah, the the company has been around uh, for a number of years. Uh, we're taking our experience and and gleaning knowledge from another community on the other coast of where we are. It's a community called Kudruak. They had the uh, container in 2018 and they've been running it since uh, for a couple of years now. So we, we communicate with them regularly on how it's going and what they're growing. Ah, well, that's great that you've got that to fall back on uh, as an example. I know you mentioned about the One Drop organization, the International Foundation, and uh, that's that's uh, associated with Cirque du Soleil, yes, uh, Guy Liamberté? Yes, it is. And so part of our, uh, most of our activities have a social art component, and, you know, we want to bring activities that, bring people together, but also help bring change in their behavior. And one of our major accomplishments uh, through this project is uh, helping the start of uh, the first Inuit circus troupe called Tupic Act. Mm -hmm. And these are young people uh, that started out in a local program and uh, as young uh, circus instructors and now there's members from Kudrak, Bovanaduk, Gangsuk, Inukdrak, and Montreal. And they've performed in uh, mainly Quebec over the last year. Wow, that, that's fascinating. And, and, and you say that that's sort of part tied in with this idea? Uh, for sure. The, um, we've asked them to come to Inukdrak uh, as a troupe. Uh, they've worked on their first creation uh, and they've filmed it, and we're going to be sharing their film with Inukdrak in, in the new year. Uh, they've also uh, developed some short videos for us, one on composting, so uh, and one on con- cooking country food, and also highlighting the safety measures during this uh, COVID-19. Right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in one of those two coordinates, as well as ELMNTFM, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it is a pleasure to have with us here on the show Karen Kettler. She's the manager of the Perusivik Project in Inukivak, Quebec. And we're talking to her about this project because it has to do with them receiving this large container, uh, or oh, about forty feet long, and it's a, uh, a hypoponic container that's going to allow them to grow greens all year round uh, in the in the. In 
which is normally a very cold part of the north, as we know in Quebec, and uh, shorter summers, longer winters, uh, longer summer days in the summer, but shorter in the winter, of course, uh, uh, longer nights. Uh, this container, this hypochondric container, is going to allow them to grow uh, greens, mostly great leafy greens, uh, throughout the year. And it was something that the community requested. And so, um, Karen, I, I, did you do any uh, sampling of the greens prior to them growing them in the community? I'm just wondering, how do you, how do you think they're going to take the kale? Um, we have... As I mentioned earlier, uh, we've done several different activities to help prepare the community with mm. the d- new vegetables that might they might not be familiar with. So mm. we had um, the environmental club at the school uh, develop some coal frames in 2019, and we installed them at various organizations throughout the community. And in those coal frames... Um, they, we've planted various uh, vegetables and herbs, uh, including kale. So uh, people are being more exposed to new vegetables um, through these boxes that are called coal frames. Mm. Uh, they're boxes that sit outside. They have a clear glass on the top to uh, keep the sun. And we work in them between June and September. So we're, you know, growing kale, we're growing bok choy, uh, Swiss char, carrots, uh, beets, lettuces, spinach. And uh, people are really proud when they can take uh, a piece of a leaf or eat a radish and say, this is from Minukjak, mm. you know, and it's fresh and it's good and it tastes great and um, people are very proud of of what they can grow here wow Swiss char and bok choy that's that's pretty cool that's great stuff that uh, you're introducing and they're able to uh, take advantage of that in the summer uh, um, now going back to this hydroponic uh, container and growing it you mentioned earlier there's I think there's about uh, did you say 16 communities or so up in that, in that area? Uh, Nunavik has fourteen Inuit communities. Okay, now you've got uh, you've got now you've got two containers that are up in the area. But for for where you're located and where this container is now going to be set up and and utilized, um, how much might it grow over a season? And will it be in, will it be enough to supply the community that it is set up in over the season? I believe that we'll have enough to uh, supply the community. Uh, We're looking at selling in two of the local stores, but we're also looking at organizations who need vegetables for their programs. Uh, For example, daycare Mm. and also uh, the adult education school. Um, We're one of the communities that has a, a large residence and programs for adult education. Uh, so we're looking at having these vegetables shared across the, the the town, but also hopefully donating some to the elders' home mm. here as well. Well, that's great to hear. Uh, as you say, you're going to be selling them to the, the two local uh, stores that you have uh, there in the community. 
I'm guessing because they're going to be locally grown, we all know about the costs of of getting uh, fresh fruit, uh, fresh vegetables, and other items to the north. It's it's an expensive undertaking. I imagine the fact that they're locally grown is going to be reflected then in the cost of of being able to be uh, uh, sold in the stores. Mm-hmm. And um, we're we're going to be working with uh, them to you know develop the partnership to make sure that we're not uh, exceeding too much above or too low below uh, what's already being uh, sold in the stores. Right. And now the other thing is once they are are grown. Uh, once the items have uh, matured and you're going to be starting to harvest them from this uh, hypoponic uh, container, uh, the other thing is, of course, keeping things like that fresh and and being able to sustain them uh, in a a store. Uh, How is is that going to be handled? Well, uh, once the uh, hydroponic system is set up uh, for a weekly harvest, uh, we'll have a rotation happening in the container. So we're not going to have the full container growing everything at once. We're going to have a rotation where we can harvest uh, a little bit each week. Mm. Uh, so we're planning to uh, harvest and then uh, put them in the stores or somewhere in a fridge uh, to, you know, sit overnight, and then they're going to be on display for purchase. Right. And um, you mentioned about getting the electricity set up in the unit and those kind of things. Is there much in the way of maintenance that is needed for these uh, hydroponic containers? Uh, there's still some technical things we need to monitor, uh, the level of pH in the water or, you know, the level of different nutrients in the water. Also just making sure that the, um, the, the pumps are running properly. Mm. Uh, so those things I'm still going to be learning about in the new year. Um, so I imagine that, uh, there'll be more details once we're up and running. Right. Uh, the other thing you mentioned water is the is the water have to be distilled or anything special about the water that is being used? Uh, I sent a water sample for testing, uh, and this is going to be information that the company will be able to help us with uh, once they have the um, understanding of what's in our water. They'll be able to tell us what the recipe is for um, the nutrients in the container. Right. Okay, and I think you said uh, in, in terms of the community that uh, the, this this uh, container is going to be utilized in, the population is about 1,000 people? Uh, the population is about 1,800. Okay. In terms of maintenance, you're going to be looking uh, at, at learning this and setting it up. Will there be opportunities for employment in the community from for people getting involved with this? Yeah. We're hoping to hire a coordinator for the hydroponic container. And then uh, we're also considering a working team so that uh, it's not all on one person. Uh, This is the way it's set up in Kudrak, uh, and they've been working this way for the last six months. Uh, I really like the the team idea. Uh, It gives people more flexibility and... um, Hopefully, we'll also be working with a high school, mature high school students uh, that could also help with this. Right. Um, 
Now, of course, this was a joint project. You had a number of of, uh, partners involved with this. Can you tell us a little bit more about who else was involved and and how they helped out? You mentioned the One Drop organization. Who else was involved and and how did did they all partner up? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because this project has a limited time, uh, this is a uh, four-year partnership with the One Drop Foundation. Mm. Uh, so we needed to find a local champion to help uh, oversee the project of mm. the uh, container and the greenhouse. So we uh, were able to uh, confirm with our local landholding corporation called Pituvik, okay. and they take care of all the the um, the benefits and beneficiaries that are associated with Inukjak. So. Uh, they were interested in seeing how they can make this uh, an opportunity for the community. And uh, they've been behind us uh, since the beginning. Well, that's great. Uh, Were there any other partners involved? Uh, We worked with the Northern Village of Inukdrak, and uh, they uh, participated in our community advisory committee. Uh, that, you know, we pulled together all the local organizations to, you know, get their ideas and their questions and their um, motivations to be part of this project. And uh, we were meeting with them for the last uh, two years. And again, they're local organizations. So we had representatives from uh, the school, the uh girls unit, uh, the family house. Uh, we're also partnering with Sirevik, uh, which is the local food center. Uh, they provide a lot of um, food for the community, whether it be meals or um, dry goods. Um, but they also have outreach to the community by providing on the land outings for teenagers and also teaching and uh, coaching new cooks. Uh, So they're one of the main partners that we're going to be finalizing the greenhouse with. Uh, I like what you just said there, because it's leading into the question I just had. And that is, you said new cooks. And I thought, you know, anytime anything new is introduced into the community, such as this opportunity, so you can now grow greens that uh, will be a new introduction for the community. You know, when I think of items like kale... Uh, you know, they used a lot in salads, uh, smoothies, those kind of things that we would generally use them in. But this is going to provide an opportunity for uh, them to be used, not necessarily in the same ways, and it may stimulate some new uh, creative thinking around food and how to prepare food and some of the um, some of the menu items that that might crop up now in the community. Would you you say so? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, we had a cold frame near a program mm. called SIP. It's for pregnant women. Mm. And they said they ate more salad because of the cold frame. Mm. Uh, so I think uh, every time we harvested in those cold frames, they'd say, what do I do with this? And so <laughs> I would share with them what you can do, how you can cook it, how you to clean it, you know, all those things that mm. still need to be learned. But uh, these are all steps towards the, the ultimate goal of, you know, providing uh, nutritional and healthy 
uh, activities. Right. Do you think it's going to stimulate any new uh, desire for, uh, like we said, cooking? But what about the idea of promoting a local chef idea that that some people might uh, actually, uh, or maybe you've seen this already, that people have have created a, a greater interest around around food and food preparation, or or different ideas and how to approach uh, uh, local uh, local items and putting things together. Mm, yeah, no, for sure. I, I think Sylvain uh, would have um, the better background on on those kind of um, activities, and that's a really great idea. And I'm just wondering, and I'm not sure if you can answer this question yet either, but things like growing these greens, and you know, kale is a perfect example of how we all know the benefits of, of eating kale. It's a great green to eat, uh, very healthy and very good for us. Do we know if growing them in the, the kind of conditions that you're growing, if they still provide the same ara- amount of nutrients or, or if their, their composition changes in regard to, uh, you know, the growing environment that they come in through? Hmm. Uh, I don't think there's any less nutrients in the kale, uh, whether it be in hydroponics or cold frame. Uh, we noticed that our cold frames, depending on the light, uh, because they're in different parts of town, uh, kale boomed, like it became like giant. <laughs> mm. uh, and other boxes that had kale didn't produce as big, uh, those big leaves um, right. that we're, we're used to seeing. So, Right. What else do you see for the future, Karen, as you look at this and the possible benefits or, or where it might lead to in the future? Well... <laughs> My my uh, hope is uh, that we'll buy a second container and dedicate it to a fruit plant. Mm. Um, the company that we're working with now is experimenting with strawberries. And uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of a, a berry called cloudberry. In Inuktitut, it's Upik, and it's one of the desired um, fruit every summer, every August, and they're hard to find. So one of the projects we've started here is a transplanting project of transplanting the roots of the cloudberry closer to town. We still need to figure out where to transplant the the roots, uh, but we have them and we understand how to uh, get them ready. But my hope is that in the future, we'll have a second container dedicated to cloudberry growing. Uh, now, these, I think we uh, mentioned at the top of the show, you can sort of uh, daisy, chain, daisy chain these containers. They can grow, they can be con- uh, connected, and, and so you can expand on it, like you said, add a second one in the future. Um, but this cloudberry you're referring to, can you tell us more about the, the berry, the cloudberry? What, is it, what does it taste like? What's it look like? Uh, the cloudberry is an orange berry. Uh, it's produced from the female plant. Uh, there's two different plants. Uh, I can go into great detail about mm. this. Uh, and I'm just, you know, sharing what I know. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the cloudberry comes in a variety of oranges, uh, orange color. It looks like a raspberry and it sits on the top of the ground, like uh, the plant is on the ground. So mm. it, it's not a, a branch or a tree that you right. pick it from. Uh, it's an actual plant on the ground. And they only produce one or two berries, depending on the type of plant that that is there. Oh. And the flavor is 
um, kind of sour, but also kind of sweet. And um, it's uh, just a, a nice change uh, from other things that you you uh, like raspberries. It's just yeah. a very juicy um, berry. And how how do you uh, utilize it in cooking? Can you make uh, can you make pies out of it? How would you uh, just eat it on its own? I guess, but uh, if you have any left uh, after you <laughs> pick them, because a lot of times people just pick and eat at the same time, um, then uh, you can make jam out of them, or um, butter, or pies for sure, or in cakes. Mmm. It sounds great, and um, wow, and it sounds, yeah, you said like it looks like a raspberry, but it sounds kind of like a strawberry because it's low-growing and, and on the ground and doesn't have like uh, uh, long shoots or, or those kind of things, stems or things that come out of it. Yeah, which is why, you know, because the company, the hydroponic company Grocer is experimenting with strawberries, it has a similar mm. uh, growing network. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a root, and then they produce uh, uh, leaves with the fruit. And and what is its growing season? Is it er, is it an early fruit? Does it, uh, it grow all through the season? Uh, you know, more towards the fall. Uh, there's only one harvest per year. Uh, the flowers come out in June, and then you harvest um, harvest in August, the latest September, depending on where the plants are at. Mm. Karen, it's been fascinating speaking with you about this. Great. Thanks, David. Bye for now. Yep. Bye-bye. Take care. That's the voice of Karen Kettler. She's the manager of the Perusivik Project, and that is up in Inukjavak, Quebec. And we were talking to her about her hydroponic container that is being put into the community, set up so they can grow greens all year round up there. Sounds like a great project. And we look forward to uh, staying in touch with her and talking about uh, it once it has been implemented and they're starting to see some of the results of that later on in the season. That's this part of the show. Thank you so much for listening to Moment of Truth each and every day. I'm your host, David Moses, and we will see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM.